warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. It's the Real Britannia podcast, a very British podcast about very British movies with just a hint of professionalism. It's the old crew back together for what seems like first time in ages. Scott here with Stephen. Hello, mate. Hello. Yes, just the two of us. Oh. No change. Well, no, Which is, you know, we do absolutely value having you know Tony on, uh, particularly since he was the original co-host, and yeah. having Anthony on and Mark. But um, occasionally it does end up being just the two of us. It feels a bit strange these days, considering how many other people uh, yeah. come into the room with us. Yeah. I don't know what to say to you. I don't know how, how this used to work. <laughs> <No>? Yeah. <laughs> One yeah. thing you don't want me to yourself. No. One thing that's consistent when it's the two of us and it's your turn to choose is you pick a cracker. I was saying to you off air, this particular movie, The Long Arm, starring Jack Hawkins, I thought I'd seen. And you've had a similar sort of experience, whereas these police procedurals that, you know, do sort of meld into one another. But this does stand out above the others a wee bit, doesn't it, I think? Yeah, I think this one was really a... a standard that was set for the others to be following in a number of ways it doesn't have some of the more light-hearted touches that some of the other ones might be compared to it is quite serious all the way through which distinguishes it not just from other films that we've done like this with jack hawkins in but also some of the other ones like the um oh no we didn't do the blue lamp it's out there it's somewhere in the ether. But yeah, there's some others that have got a touch of lightheartedness in it or a little bit of comic relief or a bit more pathos in showing a bit more of the home life of the, the, the policeman or whatever. Whereas this goes quite light on that and does a lot more strongly just concentrate on the police procedural. There is some elements of the home life which I want to touch on a bit later about Jack Hawkins and his relationship with his family and, the, you know, their relationship with him, which mm. was a bit bizarre. Some of it struck me as a bit, oh, well, you know, what's going on here? But we'll talk about that in a second. I'll see if I can find a trailer. I'm not too sure if there's one out there. If there isn't, we'll have a nice bit of dialogue from the movie. It's The Long Arm, 1956. Did he now? Yes, he did. No, he didn't. I found it. 
found it. Pinched it, more like. Where, Sonny? On an old wreck, down at the dump. This never came off no wreck. It did, I tell you. Honest, it did. But it's a new lamp. What would a new lamp be doing on a wreck? Well, if it's not a wreck, what's it doing on the dump? Well, you're lying. Yeah, just a minute. What sort of a car was it, son? Ford. Ford Pilot. Okay, that's the long arm. Released in the UK, nineteen fifty-six. It's an Ealing production. It's actually the last one made in Ealing oh, Studios, apparently, according to the trivia. Oh wow! Because oh, I just saw the Ealing logo come up mm. at the beginning. And you forget that they made dramas as well as comedies sometimes, don't you? That's the thing. Yeah. So it's the last one that was made, right? Okay. Yes, the last one made in Ealing Studios. Yeah. Okay, nineteen fifty-six, starring Jack Hawkins, John Stratton, Dorothy Allison, Sam Kidd, Glyn Houston. There's a lot of famous faces in the back background in this one which you're going to bring up later in the hall of fame as it's your choice my friend i think it's you, you ought to do the synopsis as you usually do so well serious scotland yard sluice seek serial safe cracker is that it <laughs> that's it <laughs> you couldn't find any more <laughs> i couldn't find any more s's to link to this film but yeah yeah it's uh very much a police procedural trying to work out how the, uh, a number of safes are, are being cracked into seemingly um, as inside jobs, but they can't work out how this is happening and what the connection is between the various jobs, whether it's a gang, whether it's one individual, um, whether it's an insurance-man, all sorts of different angles that they're looking at to try and work out what the connection is. And it's very well told about how you know, some of it is good detective work and some of it is, as usual in police procedurals, sometimes just a bit of luck by the, the criminal dropping a ball or um, a clue just being accidentally discovered. That's um, what I liked about this, because we, we find out pretty early who we are convinced is, is the main man behind all of this, because it's a night watchman. We're not going to be revealing any spoilers here, because this is revealed very early on in the first you know, heist that takes place in the first couple of minutes of the movie. And there's a bogus night watchman. So instantly, it's like, okay, we've now got another hour and 20 minutes of them trying to catch this one particular guy. But as you said, it becomes a very clever uh, textbook police procedural because it's like, okay, they uncover one clue. It then leads them off down another path. That particular path may lead to a dead end, but it opens up another door, you know, and you don't know where this is going to go. And the, and the end result is also quite surprising when you find out exactly how the whole thing ties together. Yeah, particularly when uh, it rolls out from being just one job that's been done to being others and there's no obvious link. It, it is very much a case of them trying to work out whether it then is one individual or whether it's a number, but they do eventually come up with the idea that the there's at least a singular entity that they call Chummy, as a shot on film, Chummy, that ends up being the one that they're after. But they have a, a devil of the time trying to work out how this is happening, particularly since the one potential lead leads to um, a dead man. Exactly. And then, so, of course, as as a viewer, you're left thinking, they're not going to solve this, obviously. It's not gonna, there's no way they can find out where this is gone. And I think it's just very clever. It's, it's the whole script. The whole script is, is the key to this pardon the pun there because visually it is just policemen in buildings and there's a bit of location work we go off to wales at one point and we go up north at one point don't we as well i think you know yeah yeah and there's there's some great use of conversations on trains and conversations in little remote 
petrol stations and to try and keep your interest focused visually as well as what's going on plot wise charles friend the director i'm pretty sure we've come across several times actually goes above and beyond yeah they do bring in a lot you know lots of the elements without making it too confusing they're bringing in some quite complicated bits that get explained easily mm. um, such as the stuff to do with the the newspapers which is one that of the I liked. I, yeah I, yeah that was very sort of modern day sort of csi type um yeah detective work almost because again we're not going to give anything away but one of the clues is um a screwed up newspaper in a car that's been used to is it to clean the windscreen has it i think it's been used they they surmise it's been used to yeah because it's a bit grubby and, and it's been screwed up to clean the windscreen but yeah, yeah. The, the, how they whittle it down to where that newspaper was printed based upon what the newspaper man is explaining to the detectives saying Right, you might think that this break on this line that goes across the top of the masthead mm. is bad printing, but actually where that lies underneath the letter I means it was printed in this print works in, in Manchester. And if you look at this, it was this edition and therefore it means it was only distributed. And, you know, it starts out, I think they say that there's 180,000 copies distributed in a day. Um, and they managed and they managed to whittle it down through this process of elimination to being something like seven different news agents it could it have was, been distributed yeah. by. Because one of the clues on the on the actual paper was we can even whittle this down to what printer the actual printer was printed on. That printer is distributed to that town. And then there's a number on the stop press bit that indicates that it was in London or not in London or whatever, you know. And then there's the clue of, you know, how many people have newspapers delivered nowadays, but the old news agent would put the number of the road of the house on the paper. And there's a there's a bit of writing across the top, which they believe says Grange. And I'll say garage. Yeah. It's garage, you know. And again, very clever. It leads you down that path as much as the detective. You're finding out at exactly the same pace. Although they're coming up with some ideas trying to solve this puzzle, you are going on that journey with them. It's not some Sherlock-type thing where there's a, a super deduction that he's having to explain to somebody else. You are on board with seeing them as as human beings that are fallible, that are just trying to work this out as a puzzle, and you're working it out at the same speed as they are. And that, I think, is a, is a key element to not only is this incredibly clever, but also it, it draws you in and makes you feel like you're on the same level as them as far as solving this, which gets you, to some extent, invested in the solution, yeah. I think. Yeah. If there's no reference to the criminal at work, you don't actually see him committing any crimes. It's the aftermath of the crimes. And they become so adept at trying to work out who this guy is that's committing the crimes. They can almost predict where they think he's going to strike next. They narrow it down, don't they, to like, is it 14 safes potentially that he could strike next? Yeah, and then the, the extra information they have is about when those safes might actually be loaded Worst with cash. Yeah, going into because there's like particular days where there's more money in each one. Yeah, I Excellent. think one, you know, one of them's after a um, a big performance has been at a concert venue. One of them's when a ship is coming back, and therefore all the wages will need paid out the next day. Um, there's these kind of things where they manage to work out when are the prime nights to be attacked. These uh, safes, but no, it's it's complex as far as how they jump through the hoops. It's not a situation of just sidling up to some police informant and getting told the tip-off that they need. In fact, they try that and it, it actually doesn't work. It, it shows that as being a, a sort of a pattern 
of investigation um, that doesn't work in this case and they've got to go it alone and work it out for themselves kind of thing, which I think is quite refreshing. But it's showing it mm. is a, a, a useful thing to show that, that that is part of the standard procedure but doesn't always work. So it's given us a little bit more there as well without actually uh, you know, overemphasising it. There are comparisons to other films. I mean, particularly Gideon's Day, I think, would be in our it's mind. Great yeah. companion piece, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, which has got a bit more of a light-heartedness to it, and that's a number of different cases all going on at the same time. But this is very much concentrated, although the you know quite rightly they're making reference to other cases as they're going along that and some of the people they're talking about that could be involved in it the, the encyclopedic knowledge of this seemingly small group of criminals you know they know off the top of their head which ones have been sent to prison recently and which ones are, are already involved in other things and therefore the, the you know it shows that it's not a mass group of anonymous criminals uh, generally speaking they're looking at the usual suspects but in yeah. this case they're stumped because there is a point, isn't there, where they're going through the list of employees at the safe manufacturers, and it's like, well, we can count that one out because he's retired, that one's dead, that one's or, or, or other. And then also, Jack Hawkins uses his snitch as well, doesn't he? And, and his team of officers, as you say, went, well, it can't be him, he's just been put away for two months, it can't be him, he's emigrated or whatever, you know, they they was narrowing it down even then. And then what I also liked is, because this is like 1956, and the technology Technology, not even a computer, no screens anywhere, you know, to go and find a birth certificate. They go off to Somerset House and look through yeah. the records to get, I think it was a license plate number from a tax disc. They're just going through like this massive card system trying to tally it up. Yeah. And you forget that that was genuine police work back then, that that was how things had to be done. And the modus operandi as well, they've mm. got a card system for looking through for night watchmen um, mm. in the end sections. And the, as they're going through the card section in the end, they're sort of naming some of the other job titles or oh, yeah. disguises um, that people might adopt. And they're going, no, no night watchmen. Nobody's got that as a style of... of possible, yeah. Yeah. Also the massive great books of the mugshots. Yeah. Because the policeman has actually seen the night watchman the night before and he's going through and it's just incredible. The huge, great big couple of volumes that they're trying to go through to match a face. Let's talk about this relationship. Like, There's two key relationships. There's a relationship between Jack Hawkins and his family. And yeah. then you've got his young detective sergeant that's with him, who's obviously quite new to the job, and he's got a young girlfriend or a very new wife or something like that. And, and Jack Hawkins has this sort of cynical approach to like, you know, give it a few years, and you know, you're not going to be as loved up or as you know enamoured with Alice. I think her name was. I can't remember. But Jack Hawkins' home life. This is the thing that fascinated me. His wife obviously has accepted that he's a policeman. He's going to work long hours or whatever. But it just seemed too nice. It was just too accepted. And he's probably the worst father in the world as well. When you see like, his reaction to his son, he lets him down at every single opportunity. Well, this is a crossover again with Gideon's Day, where the, mm. the, the accepting 50s wife that just accepts being sort of not even second place, but possibly fourth place to the husband's career and, and going out with the mates and doing all sorts of other things. But she does make one or two comments at some point. I know there's, uh, there's something that he does say about the young detective and him uh, needing to accept that he's, you know, this fiance isn't the priority or something over and she makes some bad comment back and he's like oh um 
is that what you really think? <laughs> but yeah, with the with regards to his son, I mean, it's filled his head with almost the, the romanticism of the police, whether that's calculated to try and buy himself more understanding when he does let him down at every occasion, even to the point where he only makes a brief guest appearance at his birthday party before heading off. Yeah. I think it's a bit weird. Birthday party ever, by the way. It was just it was yeah. kids in paper hats jumping on chairs. Yeah. It was like yeah, <laughs> all in their school uniforms as well. Yeah, and you'd think uh, you know somebody high up in the police could have heard something better, but obviously not. But uh, it is a situation where the son is let down through and he's filled his head with what the police cases are and he seems to think that that's acceptable to do. It's a bit weird, a weird one to get your head around where he leaves the house in the evening because of something that gets said by his son and it gives him an idea and yep. he's heading off back down to the office and he's then saying, you know, he's going to be back late or whatever. And you mm. think, well, what time is it? In a way, at that point, he's, he's doing that. Because well, I think it was about 10 o'clock that he got home. I'm sure it was like yeah. 10, because she says That's something his dinner being ready. And, yeah. Yeah. And then he goes off again at half past 10 or whatever it may be. Yeah. Literally so, from the sun and he's out the door yeah. again. So, it, you know, the time frames on that and the home life, it, it does show whether it's a, an impressive dedication to duty or a, a less impressive neglect of your family. Um, <laughs> you know, one for you to try and, and work out. But you could understand that um, it is a, a relationship that is fa- quite fraught from her point of view, because obviously he comes home late without mm. her knowing whether he's going to be coming home late and whether that is actually him not being home on time means he's not coming home at all. And for all the the idea that he's openly saying to her that his, his young detective needs to sort of get his head around a changed way of doing things with regards to how he doesn't pamper his fiancée by putting her first all the time. There is a one point where there's a bit of that rubbing off the other direction when Jack Hawkins' character almost misses a train because he decides to go and ring home. Wife, yeah. Yeah, to ring home to the wife who picks up the phone and is, you know, worried that the phone has rung at that time of night so it means that, you know, he's dead and actually he's trying to de- try and, because it's so out of character for her, She's worried about it. Trying to do the right thing, and it's obviously, yeah, just just backfires almost. Yeah, but it is an interesting dynamic, and as you say, it's the two relationships, the home life relationship and son and, and wife, and then the relationship he has with the young detective. And it shows that he's maybe a good detective, but he's not necessarily uh, great interpersonally with, with people um, <laughs> in a number of ways. He just doesn't seem to get that not everybody has the same focus on work to the exclusion of everything else. Exactly. I'd like to talk about some of the other characters, and I think probably the best way to do it would be to go to the Hall of Fame, because I'm sure there's going to be a few people popping in. Could you grab your keys, mate? Let's let's take a wander up the path, and we'll just see who's in the Hall of Fame this week, because there's some very interesting characters in the background here.
Okay, mate, Village Hall of Fame. What we got this week? Well, you might think that there's a lot of people um, mm. coming into this Village Hall of Fame, and uh, but yeah, I'd like to say that nobody has, has, has appeared in anything before or, or again. Um, and which is that the only film that they've been in um, because it would be awful if 57 of the 67 people in this film have been in something before 57 out of the 67 cast members please don't read them all out because I, I honestly wasn't expecting that I, I just looked in general at some of the faces and I've had a quick scan down the cast list now and I'm thinking yeah we've seen him we've seen him but I didn't so like 90% of this cast we've seen in one form or another in a, in a movie previously here yeah. <laughs> what I'd suggest, do you just want to do the new inductees? Is, is their third appearance? Well, that? I'll just mention, of the 12 people that are making their second appearances, Yeah. I'll just mention oh. one that is a name we recognise, um, mm. Nicholas Parsons. I had to double take, because when they appeared as the policeman, I thought, I know that face. And then I had to rewind, as much as you can rewind a, a DVD these days, you know, I'd jump back. And I thought, that is, that's Nicholas Parsons. And we saw him, was it in the Norman Wisdom? I can't remember what one, I'm going to say. Uh, no, no, it wasn't Norman Wisdom. No, it was Carry On Regardless. Uh, carry On, that was it. Yeah, because people forget, you know, they only associate Nicholas Parsons with game shows and, and radio productions, you know, but he was a comedic actor. You might have struggled. I mean, you recognised the first, but his voice was dubbed by somebody else, apparently. Well, Nicholas Parsons? Yeah, in this film, yeah, apparently they decided to dub his voice. Maybe it came across as too posh for just a, a normal constable. He um, stood around in a... Yeah, still around in some scrapyard. Uh, so, yeah, he's one of 12 people making their second appearance. But as far as people making their debut in the Hall of Fame by making three appearances, yeah. um, we've got 13 of those. Oh, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> Dorothy Allison, who actually played the wife in this film, yeah. she was in Georgie Girl and The Amazing Mr. London. Right. Uh, Warwick Ashton, who was in Cruel Sea and Dunkirk. Mm -hmm. Peter Burton, Doctor No and Night to Remember. Jemison Clark, X the Unknown and Whiskey Galore. David Davison, Lavender Hillmore Pool of London. Richard Davies, Lavender Hillmore Police Sir. Yeah. Charles Friend, the director. Cool. Previously did Cruel Sea and uh, Scott of the Antarctic. Yeah. One welcome addition I'm sure you'll be very happy about is Fraser Hines. <laughs> very young Fraser Hines, credited as Urchin in this. Yes, Urchin. Uh, one Good Turn and X the Unknown. Jim McNaughton, Dan Busters and Private Progress. Uh, John Stratton, who played the young detective, yeah. uh, was in Cruel Sea and Seven Days to Noon. Frederick Trevis, Carry On, Constable and Pool of London. Peter Welsh, Admiral Crichton and Prize of Arms. And Martin Wildeck was in Carry On, Sergeant and Robbery. They're all inducted as third-time appearances. So yes, there's um, six people making their fourth appearance, which I won't give you the names of the films they were in, but that's Edward Cast, uh, Michael Collins, Jack Dearlove, Meredith Edwards, uh, Harold Goodwin and Charles Rayford. Okay, that's four appearances. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, ten people making their fifth appearance. <laughs> <laughs> no. uh, Dennis Carnell, Fred Davis, Jack Hawkins, Glyn hey. uh, Houston, uh, yes. Stratford Johns. Brilliant, yeah, with a recognised idiot. Uh, very young, yeah. Barry Keegan, Richard Leach, Colin McKenzie, Fred Nicholas, Sidney Taffler. Sidney Taffler, that's a good one. Yes, Sidney Taffler. him. 
quite an important part in the movie. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, six people making their six appearances. Most recognisably, I think for us, possibly uh, one of the most is uh, Ian Bannon. Yes, I thought that when I saw him because I saw his name at the credits at the beginning and then completely forgot he was going to appear in it. And then when you see him, what was surprising for me, you normally associate Ian Bannon as a nasty character, a villain or a crook or something like this, but he's the complete opposite in this, isn't he? He's just the family man, totally innocent, just gets caught up tragically in the whole goings-on of this movie. Which is kind of out of the six roles that he's done. There's another two of those where he kind of is the family man caught up in in circumstances because one of them was Hope and Glory and one of them was Wicked Ned. Sort of in the latter ends of his career, playing mm. a, a more... But young Ian Bannon uh, was always cast as the bad guy. Yeah. Great eyebrow acting from him. Didn't <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was a bit over the top, I think. Though The camera, Charles Fred, <laughs> a bit, bit crazy in that hospital scene where Ian Bannon cannot talk and, and just kept switching <laughs> the light off to, to indicate that he was closing his eyes. You know, <laughs> That stood out for me. That was That's probably why Ian <laughs> Bannon was, was the most memorable character in this entire movie. Just great eyebrow acting. Lindsay Hooper, uh, Jeffrey Keane, who we yes. recognise, Harry Locke, yeah. we also recognise, David yeah. Lodge, we would recognise as well, uh, yeah. and John Warwick. Yeah, David Lodge, yeah. policeman in the background, wasn't he? I think at the car lot, you know, you wouldn't have recognised him unless you were looking out for him, to be honest. Yeah. No. Uh, I've just spotted a big one, but I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll let you get to it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, didn't even uh, know. Okay. Yeah. Three people making the seventh appearances uh, yeah. without listing the films as such uh, is mm. Arthur Howell, Pat Ryan, and John Wilder. Mm-hmm. Two people making the eighth appearances, which are Philip Stewart and John Welsh. Uh, and then we get on to two people making their ninth appearances. Now we recognise uh, Sam Kidd. That's nine, so, Sam. He's, he's creeping in a bit now because he had a very slow start that we thought he was going to be one of the people that was going to be at yeah. the top didn't we at some point so nine he's nearly in the double figures that's good get into the double figures and to be fair you need to be in double figures to be in the top 10 at this stage really yeah um, the other person with their their ninth appearance is a guy called Aidan Harrington of the 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 famous Harrington clan yes he's he's the only Harrington in this (laughs) only Harrington in this as it happens was he um, one person because Aidan Harrington was a, was a child actor as well, wasn't he? I'm trying to see who he played. Yeah. Aidan Harrington was the police photographer. Mm, there you go. Probably like late teens, early 20s then, because I know we've seen him as a child actor in previous things as well. So Okay. One person making their 10th appearance, mm-hmm. which is uh, George Holdcroft. And um, who was George Holdcroft? Let's have a look at this. For 10 appearances. He was police administrator. <laughs> Don't even know who that character <laughs> is. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of policemen in this movie. <laughs> there, there was, as it happens, yeah. And talking of another policeman, 11 appearances was no. um, Patrick Halpin. See, I recognise the name. Yep. So, but just policeman. So, take your guess which one. Oh, he was. Um, and uh, one person making their 13th appearance, Fred yeah. Griffith. Fred Griffith at 13. Yeah, who was you, the barman. See, I recognised him. Uh, because yeah. Fred Griffith was always like taxi drivers and we, we know Fred Griffith. Barman and coach drivers and taxi yeah. men, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. so yeah. we recognise him. Most other weeks, I would say 13 would be, that's it. <laughs> but the name I've spotted down here, I'm pretty sure you've got one that's appeared in more than 13. Yes. Uh, and finally, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, one person making their 15th appearance, <laughs> the greatest acting son of Scarborough, <laughs> is Guy Standeven. And what was Ooh, I will read out the films in. He was in Chariots of Fire, Fish Cold Wonder, Georgie Girl, 
Open glory, Lolita, Man of the Moment, Night to Remember, One Good Turn, Primogene, Brody, Private Progress, Quatermass, The Rebel, The Reckoning, and Robbery. And in this, Detective Uncredited. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? Is, is he top? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, 15, frankly. Yeah. 15, yeah. Overall, in the whole of the Hall of Yeah, Power. overall, yeah. We've got him at 15, and then there's nobody at 14, but at 13, we've got um, Cyril Chamberlain, Fred Griffith, Victor Harrington, and Marianne Stone. Who's um, two at, above him, yeah. Because the other person we do, uh, I should have mentioned, uh, is um, making their 12th appearance, actually. Um, mm-hmm. He's Michael, Michael Balkan. Ah, of course, yeah, Ely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so um, at 12, along with Michael Balkan, is Fred Wood. And then 11, we've got Ian Wilson and, and Patrick Halpin, which is why uh, in order to get into the top 10, you need to have at least 10, 10 appearances because it's gone that far now. Again, created a monster. Um, also, at the beginning, I noticed it was distributed by rank. So we get the man with the gong. And I think this is after Bombardier Billy Wells. We're going to have to go back and check these. I'll do this bit of research for you, mate, to find out who the rank gong men were at the beginning of all the movies we've uh, reviewed because I think Bombardier Billy Wells was 45 to 55 I think round about that sort of time so it's whoever replaced him in his name I can't remember there is a kind of a myth around mm. that with regards to how many times the gong is struck indicates whether, whether it's the first second third or, or whatever oh. um, gongman but it is to some extent a, a myth I think as far as whether that's true or not but um, yeah I mean two strikes of the gong because we have it in the theme tune at the beginning yeah. Did we mention Alec McCowan? God, I'm not too sure if you mentioned him in amongst all those hundreds of names there. I'm just going to have a look. He was the house surgeon. Uh, Alec McCowan. I have got him. Yeah, three appearances. Yeah, you was. probably did mention him. I just, I just must yeah. have missed him in the sea of names that were thrown at me there. This yeah. is another one that you sort of recognise. Again, quite young in this as well. Excellent stuff. Thanks for doing that, mate. That's just... Did it surprise you that there were that many? I, I expected there to be a few, but I really didn't expect it to be, you know, about 60 people. <laughs> the only thing I was glad about, really, was that I'd pitched this film so I could only blame myself. There was nobody else I could swear at to say, no. why did you pick this? It was all down to me. It was my own fault. I'd made a rod for me on back. So, uh, so I couldn't say, oh, Scott, go on and pick in the one that's got, you know, <laughs> Uh, the level of a night to remember no. level of people in it in actual fact i'm just gonna have a look now and see whether night to remember had more people in it oh that's a than this because this might have actually can you imagine how this whole dynamic would have changed if we hadn't reviewed night to remember way back when and we sort of introduced oh, yeah. it now that would change yeah. the whole dynamic of this hall of fame wouldn't it completely so there was 67 or 57 out of the 67 you said were in this yeah no, Night to Remember still trumps it by far. Plus, people who have made appearances and got to at least two appearances in, in yeah. this Night to Remember has 211. <laughs> Luckily, that was episode six, so not many, hardly anybody had done their, their in third appearance. There was only, I think, one person who was making their third appearance by then. But yes, yeah. it's a beast. It's getting to the stage now. You know, we're nearly on 150 movies now. We've been doing this five years. Part of the enjoyment of watching these movies is not deliberately looking out for these bit part actors or these lesser known actors that may become more famous in there, but it's the sheer joy you get when one pops up on the screen and you go, that's Guy Stand even. 
that's Fred, whatever, that's, you know, or, oh, look, there's a young Alec McGowan, you know, that's the sort of thing I really like about these movies, as well as, for me, like the London locations, as we've said before, and the old cars and the shops and all that sort of stuff. It's just the people watching side of it. I yes. really, yeah. Mm. Spotting that some of the people who in the background or big parts, some of them who just continue to be stalwarts as, as those characters, but some you, you spot in sometimes people who went on by the time they hit the seven, you know, 1970s. Mm-hmm. Um, they were the you know international leads in some Hollywood film sometimes, uh, or, or they went on to play a recurring part on some beloved TV series. That was the um, other. So yeah, there there is a, a real joy for us in the the people spotting. But I know regards to yourself, the locations are always very interesting for you. I mean, I think I've read with this that there's some of the locations were the same ones that were used in things like Passport to Pimlico and a few things like that. So Long Beach is Covent Garden, which is like a two-port where I work, you know, that's the long road that goes through Covent Garden. And I don't know about you, I mean, I don't deliberately look at the cast list before the movies. Um, no. it, so no. you do all of them. blind, yeah, same as me. Yeah. yeah, it's always a joy when you spot somebody that you know we've learned to love over the last five years. That's great. Thank you once again for doing that. It was probably one of your most Herculean efforts <laughs> so far. <laughs> I've got to choose a movie next time. I'll, I'll, again, I'll, I won't. I'll, I'll just pick one. I'm not even going to look at the cast list. I'll just pick one. Just, just make sure it's one that's only got seven people in it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We'll find a, a stage production of. Um, oh, we thought we'd done that with, with Inspector Calls that there was, you know, only going to be sort of seven people in the cast, and then it ended up being those. Not yeah. <laughs> they kept introducing characters in flashbacks that JB Priestley never envisioned. But that's what. <laughs> um, let's wind this up without revealing the end you mentioned earlier about um, a location like a, a concert hall and it's actually the royal festival hall is yeah setting for the last sort of 15 20 minutes do you know what that whole thing reminded me of it reminded me like an ending to a hitchcock movie yes um, yeah um like and knew too much or something which is the albert hall yeah. But you know when you know the villain is going to be somewhere amongst the crowd of people, but in this particular case, it's going to be in a room inside a, a concert venue. And we've seen this sort of thing before because the Royal Festival Hall must have been built, I think, wasn't it for the Queen's coronation? It was one of those ones that were built to celebrate, I think, um, Elizabeth coming to the throne. Yeah, well, I think it was built as a film location, to be honest. Um, I think that was it. It was intention, and they thought, well, we'll use it for concerts, but only when it isn't needed for um, a background for a film. Yeah. I think that's when it was uh, was built for, yeah. More so, likely the Festival of Britain, which was 51, the Royal Festival Hall makes sense, doesn't it? I'm it would make sense, yeah. Yeah, so early 50s. So it's only about five years old, this, this building. So we've seen this before, where a location is specifically picked that is quite new at the time. You didn't review um, Three Hats for Lisa. That was me and Tony. But part yeah. of Three Hats for Lisa is set at the half-built post office tower there's there's a scene in the, in the post office tower and it hasn't quite been built but it was going to be a major landmark because it was going to be the tallest building in london at the time and i can see why they've chose the festival hall because it is this stunningly modern looking building compared to everything around it and again it does say it struck me as like quite hitchcockian almost the ending yeah and as you said they're making use of the building almost as a character in a way at a point definitely you know when you consider their rookie era they make with the suspect 
But you know, it did occur to me, I think the first time I saw it, this film, as well as when I watched it the other night, that that is quite Hitchcockian yeah. to use that space. And as you say, something that is a, a new icon building-wise is something that does happen that we noticed. Mm. Almost kind of saying that, you know, we're, we're now in a new Britain post-war. We've, you know, yeah. We're not just looking back, we're looking forwards. So... Yes, well, it's um, somewhere that will probably pop up again, I'm sure. Yeah, uh, there will be something, yeah, that's, especially in the 50s, like you say, the post-war period, there was buildings, you know, replacing all the bomb damage. So we're going to find this cropping up as we go through a lot of the 50s movies. We even get the chance for a little car chase and a bit of action, you know, Jack Hawkins, you know, clamouring onto a bonnet of a car as it's speeding away, which I totally didn't expect at all. No, well, he did say earlier on in the film he was letting other people take those kind of risks, you see. Yeah, yeah. so there is action man Jack Hawkins towards the end of the movie. But I don't want to give too much away, and as you've just hinted out as well, still being led down the wrong path, even towards the end of the movie, you know, but they're doing so well up to this point, they're picking up all the clues. Part of the fun of this movie is trying to pick up the clues yourself as well, because yeah. as I say, at the beginning, I thought it was done and dusted. You know, there you go, it's the Night Watchman, how are they going to spend the next hour and 20 minutes trying to get to him or piece it together? And immediately it just goes off. It veers off down another road. And they don't dwell too much on this family side of things. They're very brief asides. The whole hour and a half is totally focused on the investigation, really. Yeah, and uh, it's not gimmicky in, in what it does either. I mean, for all, it's got the stuff to do with the newspaper and cars and stuff. Mm. It is that almost step-by-step process of trying to work these things out and showing that police investigations aren't solved by a magic bullet. Yeah. The process of elimination, the, use the term procedural. Mm-hmm. They're going through a procedure to try and work these things out rather than it being that it's just some Svengali detective who, who is some brilliant mind who manages to either work out, you know, go... Ah, this man was somebody who was who was light of foot, so he must be a, a, a dancer. And and uh, I think he here's a here's a hair that shows he owns a, a Pomeranian terrier, and you know all these kind of things, which you know are good in their own way when you you have those kind of films. But this wasn't that. This is very much the oh, we've got a scrap of newspaper here, which almost gets missed. He sort of yeah. walks away from it, and then has a second thought and goes back and picks it up and looks at it as if to say, hmm, I wonder. Yeah, and it shows it's, it hangs in the balance. Does the investigation often on just the chance being taken? Um, and I think it, this puts that across very well. And you you do feel from from my perspective, you feel a buy in mm. regards to the investigation and therefore the, the the outcome. Great movie, mate. Absolutely loved it. It's one of those ones that does exactly what it says on the tin. Because when you said you were going to bring it to the next episode, and you went Jack Hawkins, police procedural. I thought, I know what I've got here. I know exactly what I've got for the next 90 minutes. But at the same time, pleasantly surprised. Well, you've not seen it before, so, uh, you know, that was a surprise, really. Mm. I think, you know, it was one of those ones that possibly a bit on. I may have seen a couple of minutes here and there, or I've got it mixed up with Gideon's Day. But I've never actually sat down for the full 90 minutes and watched it properly like that before. Star of the show, Ian Bannon's eyebrows, I think. And that whole hospital scene just does it <laughs> just bizarre. Um, but again, I think it all boils down again to the supporting cast. And even those that didn't say a word, they're all there. It's all these famous names and faces that we've loved, and all crammed into one 90 minute movie. It's great. Yeah, it doesn't let up. It does have a good pace to it as well. Mm. Without, without it feeling 
overdone without there being too much crammed in. You're not struggling to keep up as such. No. But it certainly it does bounce along with you thinking, you know, what are they going to discover next? Yeah. Um, also, like, there's no sort of like unnecessary sort of conflict. Like Jack Hawkins is not in conflict with his boss, or you know, sometimes you'll get that. You know, don't like your methods, Sergeant. You know, and you didn't get it. Just got on with his job and just done it. And, and step by step, you just saw the whole process without, you know, worrying about any sort of background politics or relationships that would be going on. It was great. Yeah. His boss comes and puts a bit of pressure on him at one point, but he's openly saying, this is just being put upon me from the commissioner Ooh. or the assistant commissioner. But, you know, you do what you need to do because... I know you can do it. I know you can do it. Or I know that you're doing your best and, you know, whatever result you you know, we, we haven't got a clue at the moment, so you're our only hope. So crack on yeah. and do what you do what you feel you need to do to solve this, which is very useful, I think. That that shows the concentration on the actual case rather than like you said, bringing in extra elements where he's putting pressure on the character to solve this because otherwise he's it's his one last chance before he's out and all these kind of things. It's just you know, oh well I would like to know what got him demoted between this and Gideon's Day because um, <laughs> he's he's a lower he's a lower rank by Gideon's Day. So in the in the what the the three years there is between the films um he's obviously done something wrong as yes. Hawkins. the unseen years <laughs> yeah there's a movie out there somewhere absolute cracker mate loved it let's take a break it must be my turn to choose a movie for you and i haven't even thought of one yet so let's go make a cup of tea i'll be back in a second <laughs> Okay, so that was The Long Arm, which was 1956. Now, what I've chosen for you, mate, for next time, we just sort of said off air, I wanted to choose something a little bit lighter because we've had some quite heavy stuff recently and I fancy a chuckle. I fancy something. Now, I did a little review of this movie for the Talking Pictures TV podcast a couple of weeks ago and I thought, you know what, I want to watch it again anyway. So this is the ideal opportunity. I'm pretty sure you've seen it. We're going to 1953 this time, and it stars two of our favourite actors that we've come across previously. We've got Kenneth Moore and John Gregson, familiar faces. Yep. It's one of the finest British comedies ever made. It's Genevieve. Oh, yes. Have you seen it? Have, oh, yes. Yes, they uh, taken the, the cars to Brighton. London to uh, Brighton Rally. That's yeah. it. Kay Kendall, we'll talk about the tragic story of Kay Kendall. Dinah Sheridan's in it. Jeffrey Keane's in it again. I think Jeffrey Keane's going to work his way up the Hall of Fame pretty rapidly when we get to the Bonds later as well. But Jeffrey Keane's doing a real sterling effort of appearing in everything we watch. And Reginald Beckwith's in there. Joyce Grenfell is a cameo. Uh, Lots of famous, famous people in here, including Fred Griffiths. So, (laughs) well, they're not so famous, Fred Griffiths, but he's famous here. Uh, Reginald Beckwith, yeah. Yeah, he's been in a lot of stuff. We've seen him in many, many movies. Basically, two British couples, two vintage cars, London to Brighton rally, and there's a bit of a side bet going on, which they've never done before, because there's a bit of a conflict going on between the two male leads, for those that haven't seen it. One of my favourite movies of all time. It's a punchy hour and 26 minutes long. Sunday afternoon matinee job, mate. It's one of them. Yeah, and I think that it was last time I watched it. I think it was um, either a Sunday afternoon or it was a, a bank holiday afternoon. So yeah, you absolutely fits. Yeah, absolutely fits. 
So yeah, good good shout. Yeah. Looking forward to that then. Stephen, thank you for your as I say, your Herculean effort on the Hall of Fame this week. Hopefully next week's not gonna be too much trouble for you. Take care, mate. I'll see you very soon. Take care. Absolute shah. A positive shah. Good luck. Thank you. British end up, sir. I'm sick of pains. <laughs>